0: You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In our last lecture, I was suggesting to you that John Rawls' great book, A Theory of Justice, which appeared in 1972, was the book that more than any other piece of philosophy symbolized sort of transition of academic moral philosophy from its focus on the most abstract metaethical issues in the first half of the 20th century to the more substantive issues about normative theory that for the most part moral philosophers have talked about in the last 30 years or so. I suggested that Rawls can be seen as the first person who returns moral philosophy in a sort of really rich and decisive way to normative theory, and that he returns it to a style of normative theory that harks back to the deontological theories of German rationalists like Immanuel Kant. I didn't say much about why Rawls's view was Kantian, but let me say just a few words about that now. In the lecture, I suggested that at the heart of Rawls' theory was this sort of method which looks to the considered judgments of competent judges to give us sort of substantive normative theories. And these views, and these views get expressed in the two principles of justice we were looking at at the very end of the last lecture. Now, why is this approach? Kantian. We would need to answer this question adequately to look much more closely than I'm going to be able to at the philosophy of Kant, notoriously a philosophical view that's difficult to unravel and whose interpretation is deeply controversial. But there are certain respects in which it's perfectly obvious that what Rawls is doing, and of course he says this, is a broadly Kantian endeavor. First of all, he emphasizes that his account of justice is not consequentialist or utilitarian. He suggests that the dominant views about justice in the 20th century, in fact throughout the 19th and 20th century, have tended to be broadly utilitarian. That is, suggest that justice must in the end be guided by considerations of what's best on the whole. And Rawls says his primary goal is to provide an an alternative to this kind of utilitarian theory. So, one way in which his view is Kantian is it's not utilitarian, it's not consequentialist. It, in his sort of liberty principle where he demands and requires sort of equal liberty for everyone compatible with similar liberty with everyone else he is recognizing as did classical Kantianism the inviolable dignity of each person. We also see in Rawls view the primacy of rules and principles. He famously says that we need virtues in ethics but virtues are dispositions to act in accord with the principles of right. So principles and rules are going to have a kind of primacy. There is in Rawls a close association characteristic of Kant between rationality and morality. Rawls suggests that when we speak from the original position we're speaking. He doesn't quite have the courage to use the point of view of rationality, but he talks about the point of view of reasonableness, which is a kind of slightly mitigated kind of rationality. It's a very complicated matter, but that's my take on it. And finally, Rawls fully implements in his view something that was at the heart of Kant's moral view, what Rawls calls the priority of the right to the good. You'll notice that I mentioned that in the original position where the choice of the fundamental principles are going to be made, among the things that those persons in that position are not ignorant of are the primary goods. What they are ignorant of is their own conception of the sort of substantive good though for each person. The people in the original position, the point of view from which we choose our moral principles has to be a point of view where we're ignorant of what we take to be good. We can. Rawls is committed to the priority of the right to the good in this sense. We can determine what right conduct is, what the correct rules for shaping and framing our lives might be without coming to any agreement whatsoever on what kind of human life is in a substantive sense good. We can settle the deepest questions about how we should live with one another without settling any of the questions about what kinds of lives are the most worthwhile for human beings to live. In a famous example. Rawls talks about a person he calls the blade counter, someone whose whole life is built around moving from little patches of grass to other patches of grass, counting the blades of grass in this little patch. Their whole life is uh, focused on finding six inch square patches of turf and finding out how many pieces of blades of grass are in that piece of turf. And Rawls says, can we say of such a life from the point of view where we have to select our moral and political principles that it's not worthwhile or it's less worthwhile than another. And he suggests, no, we have to be completely neutral on this question. His view is that we have to be neutral with regard to conceptions of the good because Rawls thinks that although we can come to agreement on principles of right, we don't have any hope given the kind of life we live together, of coming to substantive agreement on what kinds of lives are worthwhile. Now this notion of the priority of the right to the good and the neutrality with regard to the good is a central thought in Kant's moral philosophy. And it's one that's picked up in Rawls' political and moral theory, and it's an idea that I'm sure all of you will recognize is at the very heart of contemporary liberal political theory. Now I don't mean liberal in the sense of the Democratic Party as opposed to the Republican Party. In some respects, in the sense of liberal which I'm using it, Republicans, some Republicans may be as liberal as Democrats. I mean the kind of political theory that emphasizes the sort of autonomy and equality of each person and the kind of formality of principles of justice. Rawls is Kant's great disciple in the 20th century, and Kant speaks through Rawls. I would say to the moral and political problems of our day. Just briefly, Rawls produced a number of brilliant students, including Tom Nagel, his first and most important student, who carries on Rawls's uh, sort of campaign to revive Kantian ethical theory. Rawls, uh, among Nagel's many books, or the book's called "The Possibility of Altruism," a very early book, which is one of the most remarkable and brilliant books in contemporary ethical theory, and a more recent book, The View From Nowhere. Christine Korsgaard, who's uh, taken Rawls' position at Harvard, is now chairman of the philosophy department at Harvard. Another student of his has written, again, a remarkable book called The Sources of Normativity, which develops some of these neo-Kantian themes. Tim Scanlon, yet another student of Rawls, uh, has a more recent book, What We Owe to Each Other. Rawls' book, then, is not just a single sort of pebble thrown into the pond of contemporary ethical theory. He very self-consciously begins a movement in moral philosophy which continues to be led by many of his students. And I only regret that we don't have time to explore in more detail the issues that emerge from this sustained attempt over the last 40 years to develop and refine the kind of neo-Kantian moral view that Rawls develops. It's not surprising though, philosophy being what it is, that Rawls' turn to classical normative theory and his attempt to revive Kant, it should not be surprising to us that it brings with it a kind of reaction. Kant, as we've seen, was not the only classical normative theorist. He was joined in this regard by classical Aristotelians and. Uh, 19th century utilitarians, not to mention lots of other motley group of moral philosophers who have sort of hybrid views of various sorts. The most immediate response to Rawls came from, again, a brilliant set of moral philosophers who reacted to his revival of Kant by attempting to revive classical Utilitarianism. Let me say to get into this topic of the new consequentialism, to remind ourselves a little bit about classical utilitarianism. There were three great figures in the 19th century, some of their names we've mentioned earlier, who developed this radical and new account of ethics which we associate with classical utilitarianism. Jeremy Bentham, who in many ways is responsible for it all, an 18th century figure who lives well into the 19th century, one of the most eccentric philosophers whoever lived, if you visit London and University College there you will find Jeremy Bentham's embalmed body sitting in a wheelchair right inside the front door. Uh, He was one of the founders of University College London and uh, this was one of the requests in his will that he be kept there embalmed forever. He is rolled out for the uh, meetings of the Board of Trustees of uh, University College once a year. Jeremy Bentham was a tutor to John Stuart Mill the greatest of the 19th century utilitarians in terms of cultural influence who in turn inspired the more academic work of Henry Sidgwick who is the man I suggested to you before whose crisis and whose work helps bring about the sort of revolution in early 20th century moral philosophy which produces a G.E. Moore. What did classical utilitarianism have in common? The classical utilitarians were often referred to as Philosophical radicals, because they were not just developing a position in moral philosophy, they were developing a position in this way. They were something like the way Marxists are regarded in the 20th century to revolutionize. Society, the conservative times of London, conservative as it was in the 19th century, despised John Stuart Mill and the utilitarians, and when he died well into his 70s, they began his obituary by recalling that as a young man he had been arrested for distributing contraceptive devices in Hyde Park. The kind of radicalism of uh, utilitarianism came through in the social activities in many ways of these figures, although by the end of the 19th century, Henry Sidgwick is pretty much just another boring academic like the rest of us. But utilitarianism did not begin in that fashion. What did utilitarians believe? Well, the principle of utility, which was the sort of mantra of this movement, was A principle that can be formulated in various ways, but this one will do okay. Act always so that you bring about the greatest happiness of the greatest number. The utilitarians were committed to maximizing happiness for the greatest number of people and this principle was put forward as a supremely adequate principle in itself. It was sufficient for understanding the full demands of the moral life. You might notice certain features of this view, it's first of all consequentialist in the narrow sense. The only thing that counts in evaluating someone's actions are the consequences, what we bring about. It's also a maximizing principle. The suggestion is that we have to bring about the greatest happiness to the greatest number. We have to produce as much as possible of something. In the utilitarianism, it's a hedonistic theory. What we have to bring about is happiness, and Mill makes it very clear, as does Bentham, that happiness means pleasure in the absence of pain. So it's consequentialist. We're only interested in the consequences. It's maximizing. It's hedonistic in the sense that it focuses on pleasure. Now, we can imagine, obviously, a consequentialist theory that wasn't hedonistic, although it's, it's difficult to imagine one that's not maximizing. G.E. Moore, in fact, insofar as he had a normative theory, the one I talked about at the end, of. The second lecture was certainly a consequentialist. He thought we should act in such a way as to bring about as much good stuff as possible, but he certainly did not think that what's good is limited to what gives us pleasure. Recall for more, what's good is going to the art museums on Sunday afternoon with your friends. Now, one way of looking at what this view commits us to is to look at a little picture here. Imagine a choice situation that you might be in where you're trying to decide what to do and you're trying to decide among three actions. Uh, You could do act one and suppose you live in a world in which really there are only three people. In fact, you might be one of them. Suppose you're Jones. If you perform action one, it will have as a consequence that Jones gets 22 units of happiness, Smith gets 22 units and Roberts gets 22 units for a total of 66 units of happiness. But on the other hand, you could pick act two which has different consequences. It might produce only three units of happiness for Jones, 20 for Smith, and 98 for Roberts, for a total of 121. Or finally, you could choose Act Three, where poor Jones has a hard time, negative 23. We can only imagine what this might involve. Smith gets 12 units of happiness, and Roberts gets 340, wins the lottery or something because Jones gets sent to prison for stealing the ticket that Roberts later turns in to make himself wealthy for a total of 329 units of happiness. Now this little matrix, as silly as it is in certain respects, represents the utilitarian conception of what it is to make practical decisions. What we have to do is look at the actions open to us, suppose there are three, we have to look at the Possible consequences of each of these actions on all the other people in the world. Remember, this is a maximizing theory. And then ethics is all about arithmetic. All we have to do is add these things up, and the action we should perform is the one that has the biggest number over here. If you can add, you can do ethics. Now, it's surely one of the reasons that utilitarianism had such an attraction in the 19th century because of some of those cultural changes in the 19th century I talked about earlier, there were lots of people looking for simple ethical guidance. Suppose you were an industrial worker who'd been uprooted from a village somewhere in the Midlands of England, you left the church you went to, you left the family, that the larger extended family you were associated with, you left the pressure of the traditional norms and you found yourself in a large industrial city trying to make your way. You no longer could guide your actions by the kinds of constraints and rules that emerge from close-knit communities. You needed, as it were, ethical guidance that you could carry around sort of on a business card or something like that, simple ethical guidance, something that would tell you how to behave. And utilitarianism seemed to fit the bill. All you needed to know was predict, quantify, add. Granted there was lots of complexity here once you started doing it, but the basic idea was simple and it's surely the simplicity of utilitarianism that appealed to lots of people uh, originally. Now of course lots of things call out for criticism here and let's begin with the classical criticisms of utilitarianism. Rawls say it fails to respect the separateness of persons. If you think of that matrix again, what utilitarianism does is as it were agglomerate all the interests and pleasures of everybody as if we were sort of one big person and Rawls says that's not the way we should think of ethics we should think of us as separate persons with our satisfactions and this is an argument against the maximizing part of this theory a second objection is you might say it's silly to assign numbers to pleasures or satisfactions where do these numbers come from? It seems completely unreal. Third, you might think that utilitarianism asks too much of our predictive power. How do I know what the consequences of my actions are going to be? Or how do I know for sure? How can I fill out the values in this matrix? And finally, to many people, utilitarianism has seemed to be too demanding. If what I'm required at every moment is To do as much as possible to bring about the greatest happiness for the greatest number, then am I ever allowed to buy a nice present for my son who might be very well off already or send flowers to my wife? At any moment I could spend $35 to send flowers to my wife to sort of celebrate our anniversary. I could take that $35 and send it to Oxfam and perhaps save the lives of several children in an African famine situation. Utilitarianism seems to demand that we give up, for example, what contemporary philosophers have called special relationships, these obligations we might think we have to our families, to our friends, to our loved ones, to our neighbors, always in order to think about what's best on the whole. Well, after Rawls opened the door for the revival of traditional ethical theory, what actually happens is that As I said before, a number of brilliant moral philosophers enter the fray and attempt to respond to these classical objections and to fix up utilitarianism into a form that will make it a worthy competitor to Rawls, Kantian style theories and the kind of Aristotelian theories I'm going to be talking about next class. can only give you an idea here of the kinds of responses that were made. With regard to the first objection that utilitarianism fails to respect the differences among persons Derek Parfit, one of the most influential contemporary moral philosophers says, but maybe persons aren't so separate after all. And in a brilliant book called Reasons and Persons, he argues that perhaps we shouldn't think of ourselves as completely isolated individuals who persist through time and are different from people sort of other than ourselves, but perhaps we sh- sort of leak into our future. We're transformed. Our lives where the person I am at age 20 is not exactly the same person I am at age 40. Obligations I incur at 20 I may no longer have at 40 because I've changed. I've become a different person and this sort of breaks down the separateness of particular persons and Parfit wants to suggest that in the same way perhaps the way we live among others we should see ourselves and our interests as sort of merging with theirs and that seems to be a response to this first objection what about the claim that we can't quantify pleasure or satisfaction contemporary consequentialism is for the most part not hedonistic it gets allied with some very sophisticated and technical contemporary economics in which what we try to maximize increasingly comes to be called not pleasure but preference satisfaction whatever our preferences may be I mean you may prefer to build up your body in certain sorts of ways, in ways that don't give you pleasure at all, except the pain of running 12 miles every day. But what we maximize are the preferences across persons And economists, especially in the branch of economics called welfare economics, have developed all sorts of sophisticated ways of measuring preference satisfactions across huge populations. There are technical problems with this, but we aren't sort of hopelessly left staring at numbers thinking that someone gets 22 units of what Bentham used to call hedons, units of pleasure, but we, we have ways of measuring preference satisfaction. What about the claim that it asks too much of our predictive powers? Contemporary probability theory gives us ways of predicting the future with certain kinds of probabilities. Of course, utilitarianism does not ask us to predict the future with certainty. It asks us simply to make reasonable predictions about what the consequences of our action are going to be. And those who defend consequentialism suggest that we have to do this on any kind of theory. If you're a Kantian or an Aristotelian, you're going to have to have some sense of what the consequences of your action are or you won't even know what your action is, as it were. So everybody has to have some sense of the consequences of their action and when we couple a kind of consequentialist conception of ethics with sophisticated probability theory, we may not know for sure. That if I pull this trigger and that bullet goes toward you it will kill you but we certainly know with a high degree of probability that it will and we certainly know that if we send in some cases fifty dollars to Oxfam six children may be saved from dying from infant diarrhea so when people say it has too much of our predictive power consequentialists have a response finally What about the claim that it's too demanding if we try to be consequentialist and we always have to focus on acting for the best do i have to neglect my wife and my children and my friends do i have to take all of my surplus income and send it off to help other people satisfy their preferences can i prefer my family or my country people or my my neighbors the tough guy consequentialists have wanted to say you know we really do need to radically change our lives. Moral philosophers like Peter Singer have suggested that utilitarianism may require of each of us that we give away virtually everything that we have and down to a marginal level of existence as long as our giving, our resources can bring other people up to a level of living that will maximize preference satisfaction much greater than our current way of living. So contemporary consequentialists have harked back in a way to that kind of radical utilitarianism we associate with the young Jeremy Bentham that sees utilitarianism, or in this case it's consequentialist contemporary variation, as an instrument of radical social change. When we look at that matrix before of decision and we notice that the utilitarian might prefer that some people suffer in order that everybody be better off, the utilitarians might want to bite that bullet and say that's the price we sometimes have to pay. Rawls was opposing this view by trying to hold on to a more classical Kantian approach to these questions of right and wrong, especially in the area of justice, by suggesting that we can't ever sacrifice the interests of one person for those of another. Consequentialists call us in a certain respect to a more radical view. Perhaps we do have to sacrifice some people for the good of others and we have to keep our eye on the sort of ultimate question of what produces the greatest preference satisfaction for the greatest number of people. This is a challenging view and in recent moral philosophy figures like Derek Parfit who I mentioned before Sam Scheffler the rejection of consequentialism which is an attempt to respond to this rejection and Shelley Kagan in a new book called The Limits of, of Morality. These are among the three most brilliant contemporary consequentialists who look straight in the eye of the classical objections of utilitarianism and try to reformulate views that will respond to those objections and become radical sort of instruments of social change. In my next lecture, I want to turn to the third alternative with regard to reviving traditional ethical theories, the return to the kind of Aristotelian notion of virtue. For many years, people thought that after Rawls' book came out that the great battle in contemporary moral philosophy would be between Kantians and consequentialists, between Rawls and Parfit, or between Tom Nagel and Sam Scheffler. Increasingly though, in the late 1970s into the 1980s, moral philosophers became convinced that a third contender was on the scene, the third contender being a return to the classical virtue theory of Aristotle. We will look in that direction in our next lecture.